0: why do we bother? Uh, There is a a little reminder coming up on my computer telling me that there are some updates to install. And I look at it and I think, can I be bothered? No, what difference is it actually going to make other than just clogging up my day a little bit if I install those updates? And so I keep ignoring it. Following Jesus Christ is not easy, And I think one of the things that can make it hard, many things can make it hard, but one of the things that can make it hard is that sometimes there's just nothing happening. And when I was a boy, I went for a walk with my dad. Um, It was a a big walk. We kind of planned it over a day. Um, We're going up, in my mind, a mountain. It's probably just more of a hill. It's called Cheviot up in Northumberland. It was a wonderful day. Um, well, it was until we got started, but pretty soon the cloud came down, uh, the visibility shrunk to nothing, there was rain in our faces, and we started to ask at least me, "What is the point? Now what 's the point when you can 't see where you 've come from and you can 't see where you 're going? what 's the point when there 's nothing to see? Why do we bother? Now, the Christian life can have long seasons of just nothing, and in those seasons, we might start to ask, why are we bothering? But we might not actually ask it so directly. What we might do is just start leaning towards other things in those seasons. Uh, the TV becomes much more exciting than the Bible. And our, our work, our career is more consuming than matters of the kingdom. And, and having some, some me time becomes more essential than having church time. Now, why do we trust God? Why should we keep trusting God, especially when it looks like nothing is happening? I don't know if you've ever asked that kind of question. Well we're going through the book of Genesis, last week we were in chapter 16 and this week we're in chapter 17. Uh, it's been one week for us between these two chapters, uh, but for Abram, who's the main kind of focus character at this time, there is a gap of 13 years between these chapters. 13 years have passed between chapter 16 and 17. Now, do you remember what you were doing 13 years ago? A lot, a lot happens in 13 years, doesn't it? A, a lot of life happens. A lot of life goes by. And for Abram, it's been 13 years since chapter 16. For, for Abram, it's been 24 years since God first called him to leave his home and follow him. Uh, back, back then, 24 years ago, we read about it in chapter 12, uh, God made great promises to Abram. And those promises became more focused in chapter 13. And they were given a bit more detail in chapter 15. Now, now there's no doubt that all kinds of things would have been happening in the intervening periods that we're just not told about, but nothing more really happens with the promises. There's been 13 years of silence. Now, what happens to someone's faith in a season like that? Why bother? Why trust God when nothing seems to be happening? Now, I'm not sure I've really got an answer to that for you. Um, But Genesis 17, Genesis 17 breaks into the silence with a roar. In Genesis 17, what we have is an encounter really like no other. In this encounter, God speaks much more than at any other point in the book of Genesis. This is God's chapter, God's speaking chapter, his agenda. Five speeches from God in this chapter. And Genesis 17 is so important because it reveals how God wants to deal with people. God wants to deal with people. That's amazing. That's really amazing, despite what your faces say. It is amazing. And when you read through the book of Genesis and you start at the beginning, you you see the great goodness of God in creation. And then you see, very quickly, people turn from God. That's The the whole direction of people's lives is constantly turning away from God. And there's this kind of corruption that grows up within the heart of people. In in Genesis 6, it says says that, that humans intentions are always away from God. There's something in the human heart that instinctively is always coming away from God, always turning from him. And yet despite the constant turning away, God hasn't given up. He wants to deal with people. And Genesis 17 shows the kind of relationship God wants to have, the structure of relationship that God wants to have with his people. And the structure set up here is the same one that goes through the whole of the rest of the Bible. In some ways, it's a bit like when, um, when people get married and they make promises to each other. In those promises, they describe how they want to relate to each other, the structure of their relationship. Uh, the, the husband will say, um, I take you to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold, um, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death us do part. And, uh, and what is said at that point in the wedding service sets up the structure of the marriage going forward. And and, and over the years of the marriage, those promises um, will deepen or they'll be tested, they'll be stretched, but the same structure is there. Genesis 17 sets up the structure for how God wants to relate to people for all time. The components of the relationship are the same as that we saw in chapter 12, a relationship of three parts, a relationship with God and people and a place. In Genesis 17, we see promises about who God is, about who his people are, and about their place. And then we see that this relationship with these three parts gets sealed with a sign. This relationship has a stamp that is put upon it, and that sign is circumcision, which is pretty weird, and so we'll come to that in a little bit. But as we walk um, through this, we're going to see three ways that this relationship challenges our doubt about keeping trusting when it doesn't seem like much is happening. We're going to see three things. We're going to see God seeks, God secures, and God satisfies. God seeks. Look with me at verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old of this time marker, 24 years since he left his homeland, 13 years since chapter 16. And then into the silence of the waiting comes this relational intrusion. The Lord appeared to him. And here's his message, his first speech. I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. The first word sets the intention. I, I am. The the same in the second speech in verse four. As for me, it's God breaking into the life of Abraham again. God coming in and disrupting his consciousness with this great reality. God is, I am God almighty. That is El Shaddai. There's a great debate about what that name means, but, but, but all the different options people present always lands on a sense of God's utter power over the world. Uh, this is the one uh, to whom all of creation bows in service. El Shaddai. He speaks. And what's his message? Well, very simply, this is his message. He says, I am God, and I want you so that I can do so much good to you. I am God and I want you so I can do so much good to you. You see that here? What does God say? Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. God's saying to Abraham, I I want to be in a relationship with you so that all of your living is connected to me and be blameless. That is, uh, I I want you to live before me with Integrity. I'm not seeking a kind of casual acquaintance here. I don't want to be just kind of friends on Facebook. I don't want to be someone who comes and goes in your life. I want to have such a relationship that we are bound up together. That's what he says, isn't it? I will make my covenant between me and you. And his purpose, you see it? So that I will greatly increase your numbers. Now at this point, what he says literally is, so I will increase you immensely the great numbers are there the great numbers will follow but I I think it's more than that the sense is more God wants to pour out such good upon Abraham that he himself will increase now God breaks into the silence and he says I am God I want you so that I can do so much good to you and you see verse three Abraham fell face down gets it he hears the message uh, about 15 years ago, my phone rang. It was my sister and she said, um, Hi Rich, uh, me and Pete are going to get married. Pete? She wasn't even dating Pete. Um, I literally fell to the floor and rolled around in hysterics. You can ask my wife about it. It went on for a long time. Now, I love Pete. I'm really glad that he's my brother-in-law. Um, but what happens to Abram is much more than that. He, he falls down. He's overcome. He is struck with awe. God Almighty, El Shaddai is speaking to him. El Shaddai wants Abram. He wants to be bound up with him so he can pour out great goodness upon him. Our God then speaks a second time, verses 4 to 8, expanding the promises he made in chapter 12. Back in 12, he said to Abram, I will make you into a great nation. Now in chapter 17, he says, you will be the father of many nations. I will make nations of you. Kings will come from you. Back in chapter 12, he said, Go to the land I will show you. Now in chapter 17, he describes what it is. It's the whole land of Canaan, where you now resi- reside as a foreigner. I will give as an everlasting possession to you. Now, God's not giving gifts so he can get rid of Abraham. You, you know, like when, when somebody's collecting for charity and, and, and they keep kind of hassling you about it, and in the end, you give them something just to make them go away? You know that? That's not how God gives. God's giving gifts so he can hold on to Abram. God says, no longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. A bit later, he does the same with Sarai, doesn't he? Verse 15, you're no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. Now, why the name changes? We'll see again, back in chapter 12, God calls Abram to leave his country, his people and his father's house. God promises that the things that Abraham is to leave, God himself will supply. He will replace all of those things. God, God said, leave your land, I'm going to give you a land. Leave your people, I will make you into a great nation. Leave all of your security and your protection, and I will be your security and your protection. And so in chapter 17, God names Abram. It's the act of a father to a child. A renaming is just another way of God claiming Abraham. And Sarai as his own children. He wants to bring them under his permanent care and protection. Because God's announcement is, I am God and I want you. So that I can pour out so much good upon you. And Abraham's bowled over by it. Now why trust God? Why should you keep trusting God? Well you know, God seeks you. You see that here? Do you see where where you fit into Genesis 17? Now, what what is it that God is getting at when he shifts the promise from making Abraham a great nation to now say many nations? Now, this this, this multitude in the generations following Abraham are called his descendants, his seed. When we race forward into the New Testament, we hear in Galatians chapter 3, those who have faith are the children of Abraham. We live so far from Genesis 17, don't we? Thousands of years, thousands of miles, it's another world. But this ancient episode speaks about all who will believe. It speaks about all who trust the God of Abraham with the faith of Abraham. See, these, these promises that El Shaddai is making to Abraham are promises that include his descendants. God says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you, between God and and Abraham, but also and your descendants after you. In Genesis 17, into the silence of waiting, there is this relational intrusion where God says, I am God and I want you so I can pour out so much good upon you. And that message is for Abraham and for all who follow in his faith. God seeks you. And you see the focus of what God is saying, what he's saying to you. There's this promise about the land of Canaan, that there's going to be this place where life with God can be lived out. And and as you read on through scripture, you see the promise of the land grows and grows and grows. And we haven't got time to trace that today, but we can see the focus of the message in Genesis 17 is not so much the stuff, but it's this, verse 7. God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you to be your God and the God of your descendants. says it again in verse 9. I will be their God. That's the message, isn't it? I am God and I want you. I want to be your God. I want to claim you as my own. I want to have you in my care so I can pour out goodness on you. Abraham heard that and he fell on his face. And when we hear it today, what do we do? What's your response to that? Genesis 17, God is establishing a relationship. Three ways that this relationship challenges our doubts about keeping on trusting when it looks like nothing happening, nothing's happening. And the first thing is that God seeks you. The second thing, God secures. You ever forget if you lock the door? Uh, I went to a car park this week and I parked the car and I walked maybe about 50 metres away and suddenly thought, have I locked the door? So I wheeled around, walked back and I got about five metres away from the car and I could see that it was locked. So I spun around again. And as I did, I noticed someone was watching me with a really bemused look on their face, wondering why I was walking up and down. What is it that convinces you you are secure? You go and check the locks. But what is it that would convince you, convince you that God is for you? What would convince you that that when God says, I am God, I want you so that I can pour out goodness on you, what would convince you that that is solid, it's secure, it's a safe commitment? Well, the answer is um, circumcision, of course, isn't it? Of course, we don't need to say anything else, do we? Should we move on? Probably not. Circumcision. Uh, It was a well-known practice in the times of Abraham. Um, There's nothing new about circumcision. But what happens here is that God takes this common thing and he says, I want to invest it with a deep significance. He says, I want circumcision to be the sign of my covenant with you. All the males are to be circumcised on the eighth day, regardless of their class, regardless of their status, regardless of their race. It's a sign applied to every male connected to Abraham and there are no exceptions. Not just those physically descended from Abraham. But what's happening here is, is foreshadowing what we've already seen in the New Testament, that Abraham's descendants are those who share the faith of Abraham. Abraham's descendants are a multi-racial covenant community defined by faith. That's foreshadowed here. What the sign means, though, is participation. It's a badge of belonging. Well, why is it this badge? We'll look at verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." Clear message: those who are not cut will be cut off. Let's rewind a bit. Right, right back to the very beginning. in, in the good creation, God uh, and people, they lived together in harmony, but, but when people turned away from God, uh, the result was they were sent out away, out of paradise. And do you remember what happened in Genesis 3, what it was that stood in the the way back to God, what blocked the way? Genesis 3 tells about a flaming sword passing back and forth to guard the way to life. Right back in the beginning, Adam and Eve were cut off by the sword of life. They were cut off from relationship with God because of their sin. And then as you read on, you see that the heart of God amazingly yearns towards the heart of man. You see, as you read on, that God seeks humanity when we are so far from him. God keeps declaring, I am God, I want you so that I can pour out my goodness on you. So when we get to Genesis 17, we're finding a completion of what began in chapter 15. And we saw it a few weeks ago. In chapter 15, Abraham says to God, how how can I know that you're going to do good to me? How can I know it, God? And the Lord says, bring me a heifer and a goat and a ram, each three years old, and a dove and a young pigeon. And Abraham brought these animals and then cut them in half and arranged the pieces. Because that was how agreements were made in the ancient world. And these animals would be cut up and the parties to the agreement would walk between the carcasses. They would walk between the cut-up animals and they were showing their commitment to the agreement. They were saying... Um, that, That if they were to break their part of the agreement, they should be made like the animals. If they were to break their commitment, then the sword of judgment should fall on them and they should be cut off. And then in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord himself passes through the cut up pieces. The Lord himself walks through that valley of death and he walked it alone. And the message was so clear. The covenant depends on God. God alone. God alone is personally undertaking everything needed to ensure the promises forever and ever. And then in Genesis 17, circumcision is given as the sign of the covenant. uh, A sign which is a cutting off sign. It's a sign that remembers that sin cuts us off from the paradise of God. It's sin that separates us from the goodness of God. And it's a sign that reminds us of what happened in Genesis 15. You see, when, when sin calls for people to be cut off from God and his goodness, Genesis 15 stands up and says, But the Lord walked between the cut up animals. The Lord alone has walked through the valley of death. And this sign is a stamp of security. It's a sign that confirms that this relationship rests upon the personal commitment of the Lord to undertake everything necessary, even the punishment of failure on himself. It's a sign that says everything we lack, he will supply. Now when our sin demands that we're separated from God's goodness, it's God in his goodness that draws the penalty of our sin onto himself. Back in Genesis 15, it's where where God commits to walk all the way the road to Golgotha. And when the Lord passes through those carcasses alone, he is binding himself inevitably to what would happen at Bethlehem and then at Calvary. And that was when the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross to take on himself the sword of divine judgment. And on the cross, he was cut off. On the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cut off from life as he gave himself. He was cut off because he carried all of our sins on himself and he did it to ensure that we would be safe with God forever. He was cut off so that we would never be forsaken. He was cut away so that we would never be left alone. Circumcision is the sign of God's covenant. And we don't have this sign anymore because what it anticipated has happened. The cutting off of Christ has happened. What the sign was looking forward to, the anticipation of the cross has been done. And Jesus says, it is finished. So do you see what the sign says to you? What is it that would convince you? That when God says, I am God, I want you so I can pour out my goodness on you. What would convince you that that is solid and it's safe and you can depend upon it? Well, the sign is given to promise participation in the benefits of Genesis 15. The sign says, God will do it. God will do everything needed, everything needed to keep you. He will give everything needed, even when the giving is his own dear Son, now what would convince you that God is for you? See, from Genesis 17 on, the descendants of Abraham were to look to the sign of circumcision. But since the cross of Jesus, the descendants of Abraham who share the faith of Abraham, we look to the cross and we look to the cross and we say, What more could God have done? What more could God have given? When we look at the cross, we say, "Since God is for us, who can be against us? Since Christ has died to bring us to God, then there's nothing, isn't there? There is nothing in all creation, and there is nothing at all. there's not not death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor height, nor depth, nor the present, nor the future. There is nothing, nothing in all creation that can possibly separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that true? So why do we bother? Why do we bother to keep trusting God when it looks like nothing is happening? Now, Why do we bother to keep on when, it, when it's always night? Or why do we bother to keep on when, when we're always waiting, when it's, it's always winter and never Christmas? Well, in Genesis 17, God is establishing relationship. And there are three ways that this relationship challenges our doubts about keeping on trusting when it seems that nothing is happening. The first one is that God seeks you. The second one is that God secures you. And the third one is that God satisfies. There's an advert at the moment on the telly. Um, I think it's for insurance. I'm not quite sure. Um, But it has this lady riding a a bike along the kind of seafront Um, And and everything's kind of fitting into place for her. That's the kind of narrative. There's a a blanket falls out and a seagull picks it up and drops it back into a basket. And she keeps going. And the voiceover is talking about getting exactly what is promised. And it illustrates that by the lady pulling up outside an ice cream van. And outside the ice cream van is a giant ice cream. And she points at it. And the man inside immediately produces it and gives it to her. And she licks it. And then she hands it back to him. So weird. And there's all this nice music going on, but it's weird, isn't it? Uh, Anyway, the the thing that really gets me about it is that she she points to this ice cream, and it's saying she gets exactly what she wants. But what she gets given is about 50 times smaller than what she points at. It's a reduced version. It's a shrunken version, a little version. Now, here in Genesis 17, in, in verse 15, something new is added. Uh, here, at this point, uh, the Lord starts to speak about Sarah, he changes her name to Sarah. In verse 16, he says, I will bless her, I will surely give you a son by her. Now, a- Abram hasn't come into this encounter anxiously waiting for the birth of a son. It, that's where he was in chapter 15, but not now, because now he has a son. We saw it last week, he has Ishmael. So, so when God says Sarah will have a son, it is a bombshell. Abraham falls down again and he laughs he's baffled it's a crazy idea he and Sarah they're too old to have children he says to God look look, God there's this much easier way of doing things look I've got a son already here's Ishmael now that that God look it makes much more sense if you use Ishmael no I've got it all figured out God use Ishmael I've got it sorted it's pragmatic isn't it it makes sense and you know, the, the, the thing is, there isn't, I don't think, you can ask me after I don't think there is an obvious reason why God couldn't send the promises down the line of Ishmael. But God doesn't want to do that. God, God wants to take something much more hopeless. Uh, Use Ishmael now, says God. That, that way is far too easy. God, God says, I'm going to bless Ishmael. Yeah, I, I'm going to pour out blessing on him, but the promises won't go through him. Now, now Abraham, I don't think, was wrong to think that they could go through him until the point when God said they wouldn't. And and I wonder how easily we do what Abraham does. We settle for a reduced version of what God wants to do. We we can do that when we hear what this passage is saying. When God reaches out to us in the covenant and says, I'm God, I want you, so I can pour out good on you. And we say, all right, yeah, I've, I've heard that, and I'm free on Tuesday evenings and Saturday mornings. We say, no, no, God, I've, I've heard that, um, and I want to give you a little bit, but I'm, I'm not going to quite give you everything. Because actually, God, it makes much more sense to me if I decide how you should bless me. In fact, God, it makes much more sense to me if, if, you know, if I just keep control over my diary and my wallet. You, you can have some things, but I, I just don't think it makes sense to give you everything. And God drops this bombshell. Sarah will have a son. Verse 17, Abraham fell face down. He laughed. I don't think he's ridiculing what God says. I think it just sounds just beyond him. It's, it's, it's bewilderment, bewildered joy. He, he speaks to himself. Do you see that? W- will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And do, do you see what the questions are pressing on? He, he's saying, will, will, will the emptiness of Sarah's womb be filled? Now, she's never been able to have children. She's long past the age of natural fertility. The questions are saying, will, will the hopelessness of years of disappointment be shattered? Will, will the, the next-to-deathness of these bodies bring forth life? What sort of God is this? And what sort of God would take nothingness? Because there's nothing there. There's nothing that has lived in Sarah's womb. But God takes nothing and makes it something. What sort of God is it? What sort of God takes emptiness and fills it up? What sort of God takes hopelessness and brings out joy? What sort of God takes death and brings life? This is El Shaddai. It is God Almighty. This isn't some little false God. It's not some half-hearted, half-powered mutant mix. It's not some projection of our imaginations and aspirations. This is God, pure and perfect the one to whom all creation bows in service. This is El Shaddai. And Abraham laughs, bewildered joy, even to suggest that Sarah could have a son. And and then he says, okay, fine, fantasy over. There's an easier way. Here's a son, here is Ishmael. And God says, no, we're going to do this my way. Isaac is coming. And Isaac means laughter. Laughter. I love this. Don't you love this? In verse 17, it says, Abraham laughed. That says, Isaac, he laughed. And God says, Sarah is going to have a son. And I, this is the name you're going to give him. You're going to call this son, he laughed. And you see the twinkle in the divine eye as he says that. The gladness that bursts out from God. And this is integral to the relationship. This, this gladness of God. God is so glad to be seeking you. God is so glad to secure you. God is so glad to pour out his goodness upon you. God is so glad to take up your misery and promise laughter. In Genesis 17, God is establishing a relationship. He says, I am God and I want you so that I can pour out so much good. God's saying, I'm going to take your emptiness and fill it up. I'm going to take your nothingness and make it into something. I'll take your death and I'll make life. I'm going to take your misery and I'm going to bring out joy because Isaac is coming. Laughter is coming. It's going to be so good, says God. It's going to be so, so good. And, and then God says, Look, and don't worry about the cost of it. Because I've already picked up the tab for this. I, I, I've secured your place because I, I, I did it with my blood when I took on your flesh to live among you and to die for you. And now I'm risen for you and I'm calling you calling you to come now why trust God why keep trusting God when it looks like nothing's happening now will you keep trusting God will you hear how he calls you into this relationship how he says to you even this morning I am God and I want you so that I can pour out so much good you could turn away from that, of course. Close your hearts. Settle for something else. Fade into the nothingness. You could do that. Or you could press on and press in. You see what Abraham does in verse 23? On that very day, he does what God tells him to do obedience. That's it, isn't it? How do we press on and press in? We listen and we obey. Are you up for that? For doing what God tells you, accepting his friend request and pressing on and pressing in. The Lord Jesus said this. He said, you believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. See, it's Jesus who says, I am God and I want you. I want you to be with me where I am and I've done everything needed to get you there. I died for your sins and I live now to intercede for you. My life is yours and yours is mine and I want you to be with me. I want you to be with me so I can do so much good to you. It's going to be so good. There's um, a pastor in America called Ray Ortland who has this little mantra. And it resonates very deeply. This is what he says, his little mantra. He says, I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright. And anyone can get in on this. Anyone can get in on this. What about you?